0: The ClickZ podcast with Tim Flagg, insight, opinion, and advice from the leading practitioners in digital marketing and e-commerce. That relationship between advertiser and publisher no longer exists in the programmatic world. The ability to communicate value versus cost has been lost.
1: This is the ClickZ digital marketing podcast, and I'm joined by Fiona McKinnon, We'll be talking about the challenges faced by online publishers that have resulted in greater collaboration and the importance of transparency. I'm delighted to be joined by Fiona McKinnon, founder of Turnleft Digital Limited, Fiona McKinnon is an independent media consultant with over 17 years' experience in the digital advertising industry. Fiona set up TurnLeft Digital in 2016 and specialises in adv- advising publishers, advertisers and ad tech businesses on programmatic strategy, technology innovation and operational efficiencies. Fiona is currently advisor to the Pangaea Alliance, a cooperative formed by The FT, Guardian, Reuters, I, and Dennis. So Fiona... I'd like to welcome you to the Clixi Digital Marketing Podcast.
0: Thank you very much, Tim. What a, what a great intro.
1: Oh yeah, you're welcome. And <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to finding out more about all of those companies that you've worked with and finding out more about what you're currently doing. But maybe to start off with, could we hear a little bit more about you and, and your story and how you got started working in advertising and, and what led you to Pangea?
0: Once upon a time, because it was quite a while ago now, and I've been fortunate to be in this industry, um, you know, pretty much from from the early days in uh, 1999, where I by chance met a couple of um gentlemen who were spending a lot on web hosting advertising at the time and wanted to, to create a better solution to find out what actually was happening to their advertising money, and therein was born Adviva, um, which at the time we grew to be the largest ad network in the UK. And then also um, started operations in France and Germany as well. And as the founding employee in that organization who had no internet background, because no one did at the time, and very little to do with advertising, it was the baptism of fire that I needed in this industry. So we built the technology ourselves. I was directly working with developers and engineers, and we had to do everything on an extremely tight budget because it was during the, the burst in and boom days in the early um, 2000s. So that was an amazing experience and very proud of, of what we achieved there. And some of the standards that we really kind of set, including IASH back in the day around um, the UK ad market. And then I and then I, I saw the um, economic downturn coming. So I I did what any good Brit does, and I flee to the sunshine and, and went to Australia for a couple of years to um, help set up the Adconian operations and media business in Melbourne. Um, and that soon led to a global role. But doing a global role from Melbourne is um, somewhat challenging at 4 a.m. conference calls. So I uh, moved to Los Angeles and started working on branded content for Adconian and um, Smart Clip organizations. So, really, kind of the very early days of video and branded entertainment. Um, and then uh, I needed another English-speaking country to go to, so spent a couple of years up in Toronto um, with the Exchange Lab at the start of the programmatic journey, um, helping them build their operations teams. Um, but then when I came back to the UK in 2014, I realized that there was a gap in the market for um, helping support startups or organizations that didn't have in-house programmatic expertise understand what this new wave of technology meant for their organizations. Um, So I now help advise publishers or agencies or um, ad tech companies understand how they can translate the technology into layman's terms and help um, drive better monetization efficiencies. So that's my kind of long, long story short.
1: Fantastic. Well, it sounds like you've been to a lot of uh, sunny places. There, you mentioned uh, Melbourne <laughs> NLA, yeah. and LA, yes. and then back to um, to sunny old England, of course. And how did you end up at Pangea? Because that's a, a, a one of those sort of industry bodies now, which a, a number of people will probably have heard of, and we'll get into in a, in a minute exactly what they do. But how did you come across Pangea?
0: It was actually very important and remains important for Pangea that the person kind of overseeing the overall structure and operations is independent. So there is no concern about data sharing or uh, pricing conflict or any kind of um, bias towards a particular publisher. Uh, It's completely independent and not directly related to, to one particular organization. So that is why they brought in me to help manage that, knowing that I have experience in this kind of startup and get things moving. Uh, world from my experience.
1: And could you just very simply tell us what Pangea is and and how it works?
0: Pangea is a consortium of publishers, uh, which was originally founded by The Guardian, but also includes The Financial Times, Reuters, CNN International, Dennis Publishing, and also Mansueto Ventures in the US, which is Fast Company and Inc. magazines. Um, For advertisers, it is a single place to programmatically buy premium content and audiences in a completely brand safe um, environment. And for our publishers, it's the opportunity to drive incremental revenue, increase yields and also bring incremental brands um, to them that they wouldn't have necessarily pursued as individual organisations.
1: Does this sort of reflect the publishers having to work together now and having to find almost common standards to work together to um, compete with the duopoly of Facebook and Google?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, that that is the main reason why Tim Gentry at The Guardian um, decided to, to pursue creating um, Pangea, was to try to challenge the uh, dominance of Google and Facebook, Look, like, I don't think that really anyone is going to challenge the dominance of Google and Facebook. But what I think we can do is try and make our own brands stronger. And by doing that, hopefully the net result is that we get a little bit more of that pie. So I, I do think that news brands in particular are under a lot of pressure at the moment and a natural way for them to share those challenges and to drive efficiencies both both in cost um, but also to create different opportunities where advertisers can and will be driven more by them coming together and working together. So
1: in terms of how Pangaea works, if an advertiser wanted to buy some inventory, would they go to a Pangaea uh, salesperson, sales team, or would it still be done through existing sales teams at the individual publishers?
0: Primarily, it's done through uh, the Pangea central team. So we have our own sales force um, and uh, account management teams. Um, uh, However, there are some opportunities that arise for the individual publisher sales teams if they feel that they can't meet a brief specifically themselves, but the Pangea Alliance extension can allow them to um, still work with that agency or advertiser, then they are... Um, able to make that sale as well as the central team
1: okay so from an advertiser's perspective the the advantage of coming to Pangea would be that they know where their ads are going to appear they know that it's a safe environment there's a lot more accountability and transparency there Is, is that really something which you think will be sustainable as programmatic grows does that not sort of does programmatic not provide other opportunities and are we not sort of seeing the industry trying to clean up its act and introduce more transparency generally
0: yes absolutely and transparency can only be a good thing for everyone and and publishers in particular and for why the advertisers come to Pangea yes it is that brand safe environment it's guaranteed to be on the content that it that it says it's going to be on there's um it's not a masked url that is actually been showing somewhere else and it's pretending to be the ft it is the ft um, and advertisers only know that that is the case if they build a direct relationship with the publishers that they actually want to be working with so i see that yes programmatic allows you to put your ads anywhere your audience is but i feel like there's going to be more of a shift back to building relationships directly between publishers and advertisers and those guarantees around placement and what we also offer at Pangea which is different to the individual um, publishers themselves is that we combine the data and customer or reader journey across all of our publishers And are able to create this layered perspective of, for example, an FT um, heavy reader who is obviously a high net worth individual, a business reader. And we know all what the profiling of an FT user looks like. We can overlay that with a sports reader on The Guardian and have, you know, luxury golf brands or. Uh, tennis packages or whatever it might be with those two data layers combined. Now, the Guardian can't do that on their own on their sports page because they don't have that FT insight, and the FT doesn't have any sports content. So by bringing those two things together, the content and the user journey, we can offer advertisers that something different that they can't get outside of the Pangea Alliance. And then that's where we bring those incremental brands to each of our separate publishers in turn as well.
1: And that would seem to rely upon a a sort of technical uh, standard, a sort of common technical standard, maybe even a common pixel. I know that there's um, Digitrust, for example, who are now sort of, you know, providing a common user ID pixel that publishers can use. Is that the sort of technology which Pangea is going to rely upon in order to be able to recognize that same user as they go across different publishers?
0: So at the moment it's done, um, we have a DMP where the information is fed directly um, to us and then we are able to uh, create audience overlap segments ourselves. Um, I welcome things um, like the announcement Nexus made yesterday on their um, consortium of bringing together a unique identifier and standardization of that identification of a user you know with media math and rocket fuel and live intent and some of those others and i think that consortiums and obviously i I approve of consortiums i think those kind of initiatives that seek standardization is great for everybody it it, we don't all need to be trying to solve the same problem and i think that organizations such like the abnexus consortium is is good news for all of us
1: yeah that's great well Thank you for giving us a bit of a perspective on Pangea and also just looking back at some of the other issues which you've seen over the last decade or so in your career in online advertising. What are the other changes and challenges that you've seen other than the ones we've discussed that Pangea answers? What are some of the big changes?
0: You know what, in some, in some strange ways, some of the challenges remain right from the early days. Um, and, and that is around trust and transparency um in the early days we were new media and i'm using the pointy fingers you know yeah that's
1: right new media age
0: yeah new media age and and we had to fight to be seen to be mainstream and there wasn't a lot of trust in what we were doing a lot of the money was from dot coms themselves and i remember you know when the dot com first bubble burst being around going oh my gosh is that the end of online advertising who on earth are we going to get to come and buy our inventory because none of the mainstream traditional brands were were spending with us at that time. So, that was kind of that first challenge that we had was to become the norm, and mainstream. And now, if you think about programmatic, you know that was the words that ten years ago we weren't using at all. And now the predictions are that in just a few years' time that that will be the way that every type of media is is transacted. So, you know, the pace of change is really fast. However, I feel like the underlying challenges and themes that we have to address are still exactly the same. So, you know, brand safety, transparency, that middleman margin, the arbitrage model, that's, you know, the good old days that I worked in back in the early days. But, you know, now we have transparency issues around where agencies are taking their fees, um, where ad tech companies are taking their fees, and and some of those those challenges still exist today. Um, and then coming back to the publishing world, obviously the biggest ch- shift and change has been social media, and the uh, point of view that everyone is, is a journalist these days, everyone has a phone and a recording device at their fingertips, and that kind of dispersed um, source of the truth and um, where people get their news is now so vast that traditional news brands are really struggling to keep up with that change. So at the end of all of this, I do feel like the publishers and in particular, the traditional news brands have been the biggest victims of um, this pace of change in the last 20 years.
1: Yeah. And we're going to be digging into how some of those changes are going to continue to accelerate in the future, particularly f- for publishers. But we're just going to take a quick break there and then we'll come back and explore that in more detail. Hi there, it's Tim here and I've got a favour to ask. If you're enjoying listening to the Clicksy podcast today, could you please leave us a quick review? just navigate to the Review tab in iTunes or Stitcher and either share some stars or leave a comment. Not only would I be really, really grateful, but this also helps other people to discover the podcast. Thanks so much in advance. Now, back to the podcast. So before the break, we were talking about some of the changes which have affected how online publishers have had to change and evolve. But now let's look at the future a little bit. And Fiona, could you tell us what you think are some of the biggest challenges that publishers are going to face in the future? Is it going to be programmatic? Is that a challenge or an opportunity?
0: I feel that programmatic uh, was originally uh, considered to be an opportunity and that it would allow both advertisers more ability to find their audience across a wider reach and also for publishers to be able to um, have advertisers pay the best price for their inventory. What's actually happened is that the use of technology has separated the relationship that advertisers and publishers used to have. And specifically, and close to my heart, is what's happened in the premium publisher space where that relationship between advertiser and publisher no longer exists in the programmatic world and the ability to communicate value versus cost has been lost. So from a premium perspective and brand dollars, there's this great disintermediation that's happened because of technology between news brands and and those premium dollars. And the lack of transparency in the programmatic model these days is another really big concern, and particularly for my publishers that I work with, in that The Guardian did some research recently um, and found that in some instances, uh, only 30 pence in every pound being spent was reaching them through programmatic means. So 70% of budget was being stripped away through technology tax, through intermediaries through data and and only 30% was ending back at the publisher and that's a really big problem in our industry today.
1: And I think I heard that also of that 70% which is being lost to middlemen there's actually no real audit trail of of where that's going and you know it's not even as if we can say well that 70% is going here to these 10 organisations we just don't know where it's going.
0: You know what? Someone knows somewhere. And it's a bit like the non-human or the Metbot traffic. Someone somewhere knows exactly where that money is going. And isn't it amazing that we can track all this data and we have all of this information at our fingertips, yet all of a sudden we can't track where all that cash is flowing. So I think that we can track it. It's just it's not always in everyone's interest to surface that information. Um, So I do think there needs to be more accountability throughout the chain as to um, their business models, where that money is going, and the accountability of all sides to track it and, and to audit it and be open Um, And, you know, it affects agencies as well. They've been under a lot of pressure in the last, you know, 10 years around their business models and how they can stay relevant to their clients in a digital world that is effectively automated, you know, should their clients take their, their strategy in house. Well, they have the tools now that potentially they can be shifting that way. So agencies have also had to adapt and change and they, um, That overall responsibility and accountability needs to happen on both ends of that, the the transaction.
1: Now, Programmatic has has really sort of pushed down the CPM prices that publishers can charge. Um, What initiatives have you seen that have been effective that have helped those publishers increase their yield?
0: Um, Well, also there's initiatives like the Pangea Alliance, um, where enhanced data or enhanced information creates more value. Um, to specific brands. And, and an interesting point for Pangea, actually, is that although everything we do is traded programmatically, our price points are not necessarily what you would expect from an open marketplace exchange. We know and we trust the value of the brands and audiences that we represent. So our price point is more in the 10 to £15 pounds range, which is not always what people would expect from a programmatic trading platform. So just because it's programmatic doesn't necessarily mean it has to be cheap. So I just wanted to to kind of um, make that point. We, we appreciate value as well. But back to your question around initiatives, I'm starting to see more um, in-house creative solutions at publishers, which can be controversial because I know some agencies that I speak to think that should be their domain and publishers should should stay clear of that. But when you're looking at um, bringing together editorial or a brand integrity from a a publisher's point of view, I believe that it needs to come creative opportunities and sponsorship and, and doing some of these more progressive initiatives should come from the publisher teams themselves in collaboration with an agency and the advertiser directly. So in-house creative solutions is definitely something that I see uh, growing over time and an increase around branded content and marketing and more integration um, of brands. where applicable because obviously news content doesn't always have a place for a brand association, but when you look at entertainment, culture, sports and lifestyle content, food is a big one at the Guardian and Observer as well, then there's obviously a a more natural fit. And I think we'll see more of that being
1: explored. So uh, we've seen some publishers who are now investing quite heavily in creating their own content departments, and they're very much kind of creating content, sometimes um, third party content to put in front of their audiences to engage them in in, uh, content which is more relevant. Do you think that's just the future of advertising in a way is to to be less like the advertising we're used to these ad banners which pop up and more like integrated content and do you think that's maybe a sort of a a solution or even a reaction to the rise of things like ad blockers
0: yeah it's an interesting one because um there's a place for all different types of advertising and and messaging and you know, I, I think it would be a sad day if, if all we ever saw was ads that were directly retargeted to us. You know, um, there's still a place for that emotional reaction to a brand. So look at all the Pepsi and Heineken conversations that are happening now um, where brands are trying to create content and, and actually have a news point of view as well. You know, um, the Super Bowl this year, there was a lot of those that were directly having a go I think <laughs> at Trump and what was happening in the world so you know brands themselves are creating content and it's kind of going both ways you know they they are piggybacking news items to be more relevant to their different audiences as well as you know news brands trying to find ways to monetize their journalism and, and be more relevant in different types of of environments and and so I, I think there's this kind of marrying um, of of the two obviously ad blocking um, is a concern for everyone in the industry and it it should be, you know. Um, It's not right that a third party can come in and kind of demonise your industry. Um, So I think that there needs to be more responsibility on both sides to to realise the impact of ad blocking and why it happened in the first place and take responsibility for that. So it would be nice if we could go back to making advertising more... Emotive and entertaining again as it as it used to be, um, and I I also noticed just um, uh, recently, so the beginning of May, that the Financial Times have been doing some research into ad blocking. Um, they're obviously a very unique publisher in that they have um, a subscription-based paywall model, and they're certainly unique in the alliance model that we have, and they have been testing. Um, recognizing when one of their subscribers has an ad blocker and politely saying, please whitelist us in order to be able to unlock the content. And they found that um, over 60% of people when asked with this polite, will you please whitelist us message actually went ahead and whitelisted. So it shows that people are not rejecting advertising per se. It's just that... um, the use of it needs to be more responsible. And let's go back to being entertaining rather than annoying and disruptive.
1: Yeah, and I think Adblock has set up a sort of false dichotomy almost between seeing everything or seeing nothing. And there yeah. hasn't really been that third way.
0: No, no. And I and I think we'll start to see more um, initiatives like the FT's come forward. And I, and I think that it's good for publishers to come together on finding that right message and communication to the users that there is a value that is placed on my content and for that you know advertising will be on this page as it has been in every other medium that you you know you you pay for a newspaper but you still have ads in it and no one goes around ripping those out so you know we we need to get over this um feeling of entitlement that we have in, in digital because the the lack of um Funding that newspapers have now due to the change of their traditional advertising and, and funding models or commercial models is really putting a threat on good investigative journalism, which is a whole other <laughs> issue in the world right now around fake news. And, you know, the power that the journalism can can have in, in making good as well as um, controversial um, as statements in the wild.
1: And it's a challenging time for publishers because I, I suppose, you know, on one hand they, they're seeing their revenues under threat from all the different technologies, but they're also trying to have to justify as you say, justify to their audiences why they need um, that revenue and explain almost the entire value exchange to, to mm-hmm. those consumers. But from the consumer perspective, from the audiences who are reading those, those um, newspaper sites, do you think they are okay with publishers taking their data? Um, you know, we see an increasing trend now of uh, um, consumers really recognising the value of their data. And we've got things like GDPR coming in um, at, at the moment and ending up next year, resulting in quite heavy fines for anyone who's using data without the proper consent. Do you think that's making consumers actually want to take back control of their data more?
0: So GDPR. Deep breath. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's really interesting to me that um, the impact of GDPR is not being talked about more in our industry. Um, never mind consumers. So, you're asking, do 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 consumers care more about what happens to their data? I would imagine if we went out on the street right now, and I live at the seaside. In, in Brighton if i go in the street right now i can probably guarantee that no one i talked to in 100 people would know what gdpr was and what the implications of it was to them moving forward nor do i imagine that they actually sit down and consider what data usage when they're online actually means and I'm, so i think that yes consumers are more aware that they are trackable um yes they're more aware that there's this word data that's used all the time and everywhere. But I bet unless their information isn't directly hijacked or their account was hacked, that most don't actually understand or appreciate what is recorded. It, it's become second nature to us to use our devices to do everything in our lives. You know, It's not that long ago people wouldn't have dreamed of, of doing a financial transaction on their phones mm. and now everybody checks their their bank accounts where, when they're on the bus and don't care who's behind them. So I think that we've become quite flippant, actually, about data and the way in which it's used. So I, I don't believe that consumers um, know more today than than they ever they ever did. Um, and I don't think in the ad industry, we've really appreciated what GDPR might mean <clears throat> in terms of we're giving all the control back to the consumer to say, this is I want to know how and why you're using the information that you have um, against me so or about me um, so no I think it's lots of people in Brussels that think about this all the time but I don't think it's mainstream consideration
1: okay and just Staying with consumers for a minute, mm-hmm. they are constantly, What well, we're as advertisers, we're constantly trying to find out more about what they are likely to buy, what their purchase intent is. Um, there's been a few initiatives. We had Jim Hodkin- Hodgkins from Visual DNA on a couple of months ago talking about how the Visual DNA um, is able to uh profile the personality of individuals and then use that data through a DMP back into the ad exchange. Now that's the one example which I found quite interesting um, of, the, of the way in which advertisers can now understand more about purchase intent or how to market, how to personalise advertising um, to individuals. Do you think that's something which we are going to see increase over the next couple of years as technology allows us to bring more data in about these individuals and do you think we're going to hit a bit of a sort of a wall when the consumers um, say well you can't have any more data you're taking too much
0: yeah so i mean obviously um visual dna and, and and what they do is very much um from an advertisers rather than than kind of publisher use of data perspective and i i do think that there is a lot of value to um brands working with companies such as as visual DNA and others to better understand their users' wants and dreams and wish lists, because that's literally <laughs> what it is, creating a wish list of products. Then you know I, I, I think that has its place. And also providing that the data collected um, by those advertisers around that individual is actually used to better enhance the customer experience, then I'm all for it. But that means having better CRM systems that link all the way through to their marketing and their entire organization and not just siloed in a this is the digital space understanding of a very small part of their organization. But really using that information to improve customer services, to improve delivery, to improve the whole kind of um, experience that you have as a customer with a particular Um, brand I think that, that that's a good thing using it to retarget me when I've already bought a similar product is not the good use of data so yes we are collecting more and more information but it's about knowing right at the very beginning why you want to collect that information and then using it to enhance the whole kind of process is when data becomes effective but right now, we've just got a wealth of information, and no one really knows what to do with it, apart from, you know, I like blue shoes, so I see lots of blue shoes. You know it's a bit, um, we haven't really taken it that information to to the full um, benefit of an organization's you know strategy, future products and and customer journey.
1: And what about from the publisher perspective then? Do you think publishers know enough about their audiences? Obviously, the more they know about their audiences, the higher the yield they can charge, or, or the higher the yield and the higher the CPM they're going to be able to charge for their inventory. But do they have enough information?
0: So that that's an interesting one, actually. Um, because you'd be surprised at how little publishers do actually know about their audiences. Um, because unless you're a certain type of publisher, you don't have any explicit personal information. Um, even when you do, things like gender can sometimes be assumed um, rather than specified as a, as a tick box. It's just assumed by a particular name. So you, I, I, I was surprised coming into the publisher world at how little explicit information a publisher actually retains on their users. Also, a user is only um important to them or relevant to a publisher when they're on their site and um, and the transient nature of everybody and lack of brand loyalty and where people read their news or where they buy their products these days means that um you know the the, the actual user um wealth i believe comes more from the advertiser world than than the publisher world and i don't believe it's actually up to publishers to pay for more technology to try to understand more about their users when they're not on their site as well as when they are to then translate that back to a value to an advertiser because an advertiser's if they've, they've got their own marketing strategy right their wants and needs of audience profiling are going to be very individual or they should be because not every product um, is the same so I therefore see that the value comes from advertisers, CRM data, their own purchase intent, history and and marketing insights, and not from a publisher's insight into what type of um, user profiling they have on their site. And actually, from a Pangea perspective, my experience has been that only around 25 to 30% of the inventory that we trade actually um, is bought using our first party data. Most of the data transactions and inventory that we sell comes from advertisers using their own intent data targeting. So, yeah, and, and we're able to achieve high yields just based on our contextually premium environments. And the data is almost like a secondary thought. So could be different. For different publishers, obviously, you know, something like a Facebook where you've got very di- diverse audience, then then that data and explicit data is going to be valuable. But my experience has been that actually content um, right now, from a news perspective, has been more valuable than than deeper first party data insights.
1: And you mentioned intent data, you mentioned the high proportion of your traffic is bought by advertisers bringing their own data, as it were. How, how do they collect that? Um, that intent data generally do you have a sort of insight into what sort of sources they're using so
0: advertisers will be using obviously their own um, data that they have from previous customers so who has bought what on what frequency what different kind of price points um, what type of products in geographical regions or age profiling or gender obviously Um, But you you think about when you buy something, you don't really put in much more than that, do you? So unless you are a loyal customer or you have in some way appreciated the value that you bring and have translated that into giving more data back, then an advertiser themselves don't really know too much more than where you live to have your product delivered, your, you know, the postcode, your... Perhaps your age, but I can't remember the last time I put in my date of birth um, to buy something online. So um, it's an interesting one that the depth of data, I don't think, is as important as to the use of it. (laughs) And it's funny, actually, you know, um, it goes back many, many years. But the initial profiling and you wonder how do people know that 27 percent of Scottish people buy Heinz baked beans? And actually um I grew up in a household where my my mother signed up to everything. So we were on the national data register, so we had to bar scan, uh, code scan everything that we ever purchased. Wow. Um all the TVs were linked up to the national recording studio, so um we totally skewed uh, Scottish uh, viewership into thinking that all we all Scots view is sport because that's all that was always on in our house. And my mum actually has ComScore on her laptop. So, so yeah, the McKinnon household may well be skewing the UK statistics, but, you know, that kind of panel-based um, profiling still happens now and is extrapolated into third-party data sets. So, yeah, I grew up in a household of everything being monitored. Maybe that's subconsciously how I ended up in this world.
1: Yeah, so you you really understand the data collection from a consumer perspective, and now you've gone through to actually be able to um, use that data in the advertising world. Exactly. (laughs) Um, the way in which advertisers can now use data really has evolved because, I mean, Barb that you sort of mentioned there is, you know, classic example back in the day, um, you know, when I was in an agency in the 90s as well, then the, the Barb was the sort of the figures you looked at for TV advertising it was probably the the most sophisticated yeah. type of uh, measure you could have. But now, of course, we've got thousands of different data points from thousands of different sources about what consumers are actually doing and it holds them Uh, it holds marketers and advertisers more accountable. You you can actually go and see um, whether an ad you're putting out there is effective. But what would you say are the the metrics which are really important and most used by publishers, maybe some of the members of the Pangaea Alliance?
0: So metrics from a publisher perspective are are pretty straightforward. They're revenue and yield. (laughs) You know, at the end of the day, when, when we're looking at advertising metrics, it's about are we... Are we monetizing our opportunity and our audiences as best we, we possibly can? Um, now, obviously, related to that is, are, are we able to charge more because our content is brand safe? Are we able to charge more because we have high um, u- uh, a high reach and um, types of users that advertisers want to communicate with? Um, and then obviously there's things like viewability that come into it and then probably kind of performance last. And it always amazes me that advertisers really kind of push the publishers on performance because you can take a horse to water, right? If, you're, if your product isn't competitive, your creative isn't compelling, your offer isn't timely, your targeting hasn't been correct, then we can't guarantee you that someone is going to buy your product. But... Yeah, advertisers still put the blame, if you like, if a campaign doesn't work on the specific media owner. Um, our job as the media owner is to make sure that, you know, our pages look good, our audiences are are happy, they're coming back regularly and that we take responsibility for our ads being in a prominent position that assures the brand the best opportunity for that to actually perform.
1: And so, if that's the case, if you know, advertisers are very much still focused on performance, do you think it's an easy sell or a hard sell f- um, for publishers to then say to them, actually, do you know what we we want you to come and spend money on our premium sites or you know on our on our private marketplaces um, where we're going to almost give you less traffic, but it's going to be of a higher quality and and you know talking about things like purchase intent, is that something which advertisers are going to be keen on getting involved with?
0: Yeah. I think we're seeing more of a shift to that already and, and you know for all the reasons that, that we, we've kind of touched on previously around you know brand safety not being around terrorist supported activity and um, you know all of all of that means that brands are beginning to wake up to the reality that it's not necessarily about just finding their audience it's about finding their audience in the right type of environment that they would want their brands to be associated with so the only way really to do that programmatically is to use private marketplaces and to build that relationship directly with the publishers and it's also you know I see an increasing shift towards um, programmatic guaranteed as well so going back to almost the traditional IO based um, type of buying where it's a fixed budget on a fixed location for a fixed period of time and you know, in some extent, we've almost over-engineered everything to come back to that point where you have those guarantees as both an advertiser and, and a publisher. And I personally welcome that because it allows that true value from a publisher perspective to be communicated to the advertiser. And that's where, you know, publishers will start to see their yields increase again. Might not be as much inventory, but they will be able to sell it at a higher premium. So, in some kind of way that comes back down to the user experience being better if you don't need as many ads on the page to hit your target then the user experience is going to be better as well
1: absolutely yeah fewer fewer ads but much more relevant now looking a little bit at the future obviously we've seen a huge amount of change driven by technology and by consumer adoption of that technology over the last couple of years but what do you see as being the big changes which are going to happen over the next couple of years? And if I could get you to maybe sort of look forward to 2025, what do you think is going to be the, the big trends which are going to disrupt us over the next couple of years?
0: And I hope that news brands are still around. I know it's a bit dramatic to say that they might not exist, but the the whole industry is really under threat. And also the, the growth in terms of um, influencers um, over real news, I would say is also a big issue. Um, I was very fortunate to be at a dinner in Scotland a few um, weeks ago where Kate Aidy, the fabulous journalist um, from the 80s and 90s was was doing a speech. And she was asked about how she felt about some of the horrific situations she'd found herself in and some of the war-torn areas she'd reported against. And her, her response was fabulous. And it was, who gives a F? what?" I felt, and what I think about these things, my job was to go out and to tell people what I saw through the eyes of the people that I met, and my opinion shouldn't matter, and it shouldn't matter in journalism today. And I feel that we've got so far away from that, where everything is an opinion piece. You can throw out comments, and and that become the real news, and, and influencers are really dangerous to us actually keeping hold of the, the truth and the facts. Um, so I know it's a bit dramatic, but I really hope that traditional news brands are still around in 2025. Um, I don't think they will in a print form, just because you think about what difference has been made in the last eight years. But my hope is that they will have found that right monetization model for them in the digital world that it allows them to exist and to, to still be doing great investigative journalism. I think there'll be fewer offices I think there'll be more working from home to keep costs down. There'll be, there'll be everything will be done in an automated fashion from um, uh, advertising buying perspective, um, and there will be more automation of processes. So there'll definitely be fewer physical offices, and um, but not necessarily fewer people working for them, um, because there still needs to be a human intervention to news and to advertising to make it actually actually work so my hope is that we're all still (laughs) um we're all still trading and um and we also have the benefit of freedom of speech and and good good journalism
1: Great, yeah. I think that's a, a very good um, ambition to try and make sure we it's still have. Uh, uh, well, <laughs> but yeah, I, but I think you're right though I mean, it, it is. It does seem to be one of the things which is under threat at the moment, and it's so important to not just um, those of us who work in advertising, but to all of society to have a free, independent, and high quality um, press that's able to to criticise and have that voice. But I suppose our job in advertising is being able to ensure that the revenue is still flowing to be able to pay for those costs um, and it, to some degree educating the public that that high quality journalism is important but it does cost and this is you know this is the sort of value exchange which allows you to receive that that um, high quality journalism.
0: Exactly well put <laughs> that, that's what I meant. I
1: suppose you you are part of the the solution though as well aren't you at Pangea, because Pangea has very much been um, brought together by those publishers who who have that vision what would you say is going to be next of Pangea though I mean what have you got on your your plan for the next of 12 months or 24 months that you can share with us about how Pangea is going to be solving some of those problems
0: I do feel very very fortunate to work with the publishers that I do at Pangea and you know we've talked a lot today about technology and data the reason why Pangea exists is because of the people behind it you know there's a, a a a real drive and an ambition from the leads that i work with in each of the organizations that they they really see this as an opportunity to do something different to make a statement you know to the industry that that publishers can work together and that although we all have our own individual um strategy and business models there's enough common ground that we can we can do some good now, obviously, the, the first objective of Pangea for the next 12 months is, is to drive meaningful revenue for each of those publishers. And and that means something different to everybody that we work with, depending on where we fit into their overall strategy. But, you know, I want to see more international growth. About 40 percent of our revenue comes from non-UK buyers. So I would love to see that grow um, over time and for us to be a real Um, seen as an important sales arm for each of the individual organizations. A way that we can do that is to invest more in some of the products that we're offering. So we're looking at video, uh, we are looking at mobile solutions, um, and we're also looking at our enhanced targeting capability. So not necessarily what more data points can we take from consumers, but what what more information can we take from content and behavior on our sites to inform purchase intent or to inform an advertisers buy. Um, so there's um, that uh, that's taking place as well. Towards the end of the year, we'll probably be looking at more partners um, coming into the fold. Um, and right now we're, we're just looking to get um, a, a clarity on the technology that we need for longevity um, of the Alliance. And I do think you'll start to see publishers coming together to um, consolidate some of those technology costs and to also drive innovation themselves from a kind of publisher first technology standpoint. So that's something, a couple of projects that we're working on at Pangea is um, bringing together the great minds that we have as a collective to, prototype and to challenge some of the tech solutions that are available to us and flip that into something that's more directly relevant so a lot
1: absolutely difficult. i was going to say you've got your work cut out for you in, in, over the next few months there's going to be so many different parts of that jigsaw that you need to fix um, and how can we stay in touch with and find out more about pangia
0: pangia um, we are pangiaalliance.com so you can find um uh, us through that um, Martin Bojstos is our um, uh, sales director. So he's very active in market and you can find him and myself um, on LinkedIn. Um, you, if you have a relationship with any of our publishers, so The Guardian, Financial Times, CNN, Reuters, Dennis or Mansueto Ventures, you can approach your sales um, person there or contact there and they can direct you through to us um, also um, I'm I'm always speaking at things as well, so if you ever see me from Stockholm to London to wherever, come and say um, hello as well.
1: Well, Fiona, that's been a great overview of the world of publishing and advertising and how they come together and the role which Pangea is is playing in the future of that relationship thank you so much for bringing it alive with some of the examples and and talking us through some of the, the ways in which publishers can adapt to those challenges it's been great to talk to you thank you so much thank you Simon. thank you find more episodes at clickzcom forward slash podcasts or follow me on twitter at tim for change we'll be talking to more of our experts over the next few weeks until then keep up to date with ClickZ. And don't forget to review us on iTunes and Stitcher. ClickZ, the original digital business intelligence company, founded in 1997, providing best practice advice, trends and insight from leading analysts and practitioners to a global community of more than 300,000 digital marketing and e-commerce professionals. Thank you for listening and bye for now.